0: This church's core values. And the very first week, I addressed reliance on prayer, going through some scriptures and kind of indicating the ways in which the church needs to be reliant on prayer, especially for the sake of its ministry. And then Kevin last week kind of did something similar in terms of just talking about, again, reliance on prayer and especially focused on the prayer life of Jesus. And how that becomes for us an example of of praying, and that we, in terms of practical carrying out our life together in prayer, would do well to model, model ourselves after Christ and His prayer life. So this week, because we uh, because we don't have all that many weeks in the semester, and because we're kind of going back and forth with these, Kevin and I, we're going to cover two of these today. The next two, so. The active involvement of the Holy Spirit, an overall atmosphere of grace. And I am a little concerned. I'm not sure that this this may be the one I did two weeks ago. No, this is perfect. Way to go, Christine. Okay, so you guys are looking then. You have a um, an outline with you today. And I decided since I was going to cover so much about the Holy Spirit and didn't want you to just get it from a PowerPoint but actually have something that you can actually take home, I thought I would give to you an outline. So what we're going to do first here is talk about the active involvement of the Holy Spirit as the first core value that we want to look at today. We're going to look at two. And if you look at the outline that I gave you, the piece of paper, you'll notice it says underneath that, issues and approaches that captured our attention throughout history. And when I say our, I mean specifically this church and churches like this church. Because we have an interesting relationship with the Holy Spirit in that for a long time, our churches, churches of Christ, didn't do very much with the Holy Spirit. To say that we were Spiritless is not at all true. But to say that the Holy Spirit has not always been a, a significant priority for us is, in fact, accurate. Now, that's a little bit different with our church because you'll remember about three years ago, we did a whole year of study together on Sunday mornings during the sermon time on the Holy Spirit. And so from September, for those of you who are new or visitors or something, from September through June, almost every sermon was on the Holy Spirit for the better part of a year. And that was interesting. It was an interesting study together, and I think that people were blessed by that. I was blessed by, uh, you know, just by carrying that study out. It was absolutely wonderful. And so in some ways, it may not seem like we're as void of the Holy Spirit as what we sometimes have been. But our history is such that we have not always been right there with respect to the Holy Spirit. And here's what that looked like. There were several issues or themes that when we did address it kind of got some attention but caused us at different points to, to be controversial or argumentative about the Holy Spirit more than we were constructive in terms of a doctrine, positive biblical doctrine about the Holy Spirit. So what we liked to do at different points was to argue about the Holy Spirit more than anything else rather than enjoy the life and the Spirit that God had given us. And some of the things that we thought about throughout our history in terms of the Spirit are things like this. How does the Holy Spirit work in conversion? The reason we addressed ourselves to that topic was because there are some people who would say that it's God's responsibility to send the Holy Spirit to individuals whom he chooses, and those individuals are chosen specifically by God to be saved by him, and others are not the doctrine of double predestination, if you will. And the Holy Spirit has a huge role to play in the doctrine of of, uh, double predestination. Now, what we came to believe, and I think there's really some, some good reason for this, what we came to believe, that was the Holy Spirit works through the rational and spiritual persuasion of people through the Spirit's gift, especially of preaching and teaching the Word. So in other words... The Bible is used to teach people about who Jesus is, and the Holy Spirit uses the Bible in order to convert their hearts. So people make a decision in response to what it is that they've heard about the gospel, heard from Scripture about who Jesus is, and that converts them. And that's not to say the Holy Spirit has no role to play at all in that. The Holy Spirit does work through that process. But we would say that the Spirit works through that process rather than some special choosing of an individual. So instead of the Holy Spirit just saying, I'm going to choose Ed, there's nothing Ed can do about that, Ed is going to be a child of mine no matter what, uh, he can rebel if he wants, but I'm still choosing him, he's going to be a Christian. That is the way that some have approached the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in terms of the way the Spirit converts people. And we've traditionally said, no, nah, actually we think he does it through something like the washing of water and the word which comes right out of Titus chapter 3. And so we tend to think that God does that a little bit differently, but we tended also to not do as much with that perhaps as we should have. We like to maybe bicker with some others about it, but there wasn't a full-blown developed doctrine about the Holy Spirit among our churches. The second thing is there's the enthusiasms. Now, that's an old term. That term comes out of about 1805. And what it was was people who said, we really like what they 're going to be doing, uh, say, in two thousand and seventeen, uh, with reference to the charismatic movement and so it was a kind of charismatic Pentecostalism that was present on frontier North America early on, and our people basically said, we don 't want much to do with that we don 't want to be driven by our emotions, and so instead let 's continue to be rational. Uh, our people like Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell were very rational in their approach to what it means to be a Christian and the enthusiasms didn't give much of a place to that side of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When does the Spirit come and to whom? Uh, Walter Scott. One of our major persons in the beginning said the Holy Spirit comes specifically to a person at their baptism. So a person is washed in Jesus Christ and the waters of baptism and at that point the Spirit comes and join their lives. And so Acts two thirty eight was really important for us. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we said that's really important to us that the Spirit comes at the point of baptism. Now, that unfortunately left us, again, a little bit void in terms of answering the question, what does the Spirit do prior to that? Does the Spirit work in someone's life in terms of helping them come to Jesus? We didn't develop that as well as we perhaps should have. Cessationism, uh, which basically is a doctrine developed by a guy named B.B. B. Warfield, who was a uh, theologian at Princeton Seminary. He was uh, reformed, um, which means he was like Presbyter- he was Presbyterian and developed this doctrine that basically said that when the apostles died out so did the gifts of the holy spirit and our people because we were quite rational uh loved that so we kind of bought into bb warfield's theology about cessationism and we said yeah indeed the gifts of the holy spirit died out with the last of the apostles personally i don't think that the bible teaches that i think in fact you you curse won't find the word cessationism in the bible or anything like that uh, I, th- I don't think that the gifts of the Holy Spirit necessarily had to die out with the last of the apostles. And so we didn't develop uh, a very positive doctrine at all in terms of spiritual gifting and how spiritual gifts show up in the church. Uh, that needs to be changed among us for sure. And it is changing. Um, earlier, baptism of the Spirit and our reaction to the holiness movement. When the holiness movement arose uh, with Pentecostals and uh, Nazarenes are part of the holiest movement, the Methodists are originally part of the holiness movement. We didn't know what to do with all of that. And so, again, we were quite rationalistic in our response to it, and we tended to teach the cessationist perspective. But sometimes that was couched in the language of the holiness movement or holiness doctrine, which we tended to shy away from. In fact, in response, if you just keep going down the list there, we talked about the Spirit being present only in the Word. And so the only way that the Spirit would really show up for many of us, was specifically through Scripture. It's as if the Holy Spirit wasn't really alive and present and doing something. Uh, in recent days, some of us who are a little bit cheeky uh, would say that for us, the Holy Spirit was a retired author. He wrote a great book, and then he kind of went away. And that's sad. Like that's, uh, And it's also extremely unbiblical to think in terms of the Holy Spirit simply inspiring Scripture and then walking away. So... Um, We don't have, a again, a strong doctrine of the Spirit working in conversion or in sanctification. The Spirit doesn't operate, uh, or at least hasn't always operated outside of uh, Scripture, which is, I think, a pretty shallow doctrine when it comes to discussing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I would say that instead, the Spirit's indwelling, which is the next point on the outline there, is probably where we can balance out what we should have done uh, in terms of... the spirit only being present in the word instead of saying that we could say actually the holy spirit and his presence indwell us in significant ways and indwell every christian and so that's a positive doctrine that would allow us to maybe uh, overcome where we sometimes have been and then uh, the miraculous presence and gifting again we haven't done near as much with that as we should I personally think that the typical Pentecostal charismatic movement sometimes goes way off the map in terms of allowing their emotions to dictate, rule, and run what happens in the church. But it's just as much a mistake, if not more, for us to simply say that the Holy Spirit is not active in those kinds of ways, in my opinion. Uh, There's a lot still going on with that today, various waves of charismatic Pentecostal leanings that have taken place in churches uh over the years and i i like i i where i'm at personally with all of that is it it does scare me a bit uh there is a tendency there's something about me that uh is skeptical about things that i find irrational and so i do like to question when someone says to me the lord told me i you know i do tend to like to say to them really like you know what does it mean that the lord told you uh, how do you differentiate what you hear in your own inside voice, uh, or inside your own head, from that which the whole Holy Spirit has spoken to you? How, you know, how do you know? Like those things, I think are difficult. Okay, uh, but I, t- I tend to opt for something perhaps a bit more rational. At the same time, though, if we rule all of that out, uh, then what do I do with the fact that I've prayed and things have happened when I've prayed, when God appears to have come and done something? And I have no way to describe that other than to say that was a miracle. I think it's totally appropriate for us to talk about miracles. Uh, and certainly when it comes to gifting, we need to talk about the Holy Spirit and his gifting. Uh, just recently, our elders and staff and their wives all went through a gifting exercise where we uh, took a spiritual gift survey and just asked the question, "How has the Holy Spirit gifted us in various ways for ministry? And I think that's healthy. And then finally here, in terms of just the things that we, the issues that we face sometimes, the the idea of the spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines have now been talked about using that language for decades, um, but we aren't as up on that as we should be. In fact, I was quite surprised when I first moved here, uh, now going on 12 years ago, I started kind of talking to a few people about Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, which some of you might be aware of now. But at the time, I was really surprised to find out how few people here were unfamiliar with Foster and his work on the spiritual disciplines. Uh, And if I was to talk about Dallas Willard and his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines or any of those kind of spiritual discipline studies, things that would take us deeply into things like prayer and study and giving and service and all of those things, we were just a bit ignorant of Uh, Like of Richard Foster's work and of Dallas Willard's work, which just shows where we sometimes have been, even with something like the spiritual disciplines. So all of these things that I've just listed here at the top of the outline are all ways in which we have done something, perhaps with the spirit, maybe not as much as we should have. Uh, Sometimes these have been issues of of controversy among us, sometimes areas of focus, but I think we have some growing to do in those areas, okay? Now, before I go any further, let me just stop and see if there's any questions or comments about all of that so far. Maybe you think I'm wrong. Maybe you think we've been absolutely steeped in the Holy Spirit forever and ever in wonderful ways uh, and that we have nothing new to learn. Uh, Or maybe you think differently. Any comments about all that? Yes, ma'am. Okay? Now, I don't know if when you say all of that, if you're thinking of people like Anthony from the 4th century or if you're thinking of Montanus or some people. Okay, like th- There were some early on, some real problems with people doing things. And, and when I say early on, I don't just mean like the early part of the 20th century when the charismatic movement started going in North America. But I mean going back to like the 3rd century or the 4th century. They did some odd things. Like this fellow, Anthony, uh, was a monk who lived in Egypt and his way of of conducting out his spiritual disciplines was he had a, a pole set out in the sand in the desert, and then he climbed up on top of the pole, and he sat on the pole for like weeks or months. And for him, that was a, a spiritually defining, disciplining kind of practice. I, I I you know I mean it's okay I guess if you want to do that but I like it just doesn't strike me as the kind of thing that's going to be grounded in scripture and I think we need to be definitely careful about some of those kinds of things yeah back there right I'm talking about, specifically about our church okay yeah specifically our church we have a list of core values uh, that I I think you came in just after I put them on the screen, but here. Uh, we did this last week also. These are our core values and during the fall semester we're going to go through all of these. We did the, the first one the last couple of weeks and we're doing the next two today if I can get through them all. Okay? I think I can actually do this. It's just i don't have to talk like this. Mark, did you have a comment? Yeah, um, I think that I think the church should just Right. Mark just expressed that sometimes we don't talk about this as much because we don't want to be lumped in with a certain uh, group of people that we maybe see some abuses in. And, and while I agree with that, I think, that's, I think that can be very dangerous. Uh, very dangerous to simply say, well, we don't want to be them, therefore we're going to go in a completely different direction. Okay, When maybe them has some really good things that we need to learn. Uh, in the same way that we need to teach them some things. So we have to be careful about the old proverbial saying of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And sometimes we've done that when it comes to uh, the Holy Spirit and his ministry in the church, okay? Well, let me move on here. Sorry, uh, we're still here. I guess this is on the outline. What's right with where we've been? Well, we have been committed to letting scriptural precepts control an understanding rather than experience, and Sister Straker was expressing that just a moment ago, making sure that the Bible is the grounding for whatever we have happened in relation to the Holy Spirit. And I absolutely agree with that. I think that's where we've been. I don't mean, when I say that, that experience should never be a factor. But we want Scripture to control what happens. Uh, ultimately, if people are doing things uh, in the name of the Lord that are just absolutely unconnected with what's uh, in the Bible, whether they claim to be driven by the Holy Spirit to do that or not. That seems to me to be uh, r- risky at the very least. Uh, we are in some ways an intensely spiritual people. There's no doubt about that. Uh, our concern for scripture, our concern to do what's right, our concern to, to have the church function as the people of God in a positive way, all of that, I would say, is very positive, And I'm grateful that we have a church that does those kind of things. So we could say we are in some ways an intensely holy spiritual people because it's the Holy Spirit who's ultimately responsible for our spirituality. And I think that is the case with us, even if there's some advancement that we could do there. Uh, we have refused to let psychology and emotions dominate our spiritual reflections. And th- and I think that's generally uh, true. We, th- and that, I don't mean that to be a blanket rejection of everything that goes on in the charismatic or Pentecostal movement. That would be a mistake. Um, I just think that it's, it is the case that we have not allowed some things to dictate who we are uh, when those things probably should not dictate who we are, namely sometimes psychology and emotions. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Now, at the same time, does the Holy Spirit use emotions? Does the Holy Spirit somehow work Uh, even on our minds and our own spirits, so that there's a connection between ourselves and Christ through the Holy Spirit. And, And I would say, absolutely. Like if we try and rationalize everything that we do in faith and try and even rationalize somehow what the Holy Spirit is doing among us, I think that's dangerous. The Spirit doesn't want to be put in a box. The Spirit doesn't want to be prevented from doing something among us that the Spirit wants to do. And sometimes our own rationality can prevent the Spirit from working. Paul specifically said, do not hinder the Spirit. Don't, don't squelch the Holy Spirit. And we, we have to be careful of that. Elsie? Okay. Okay. About the Holy Spirit coming to us at baptism? Well, actually we discussed, I don't know if you came in a a moment late. We actually did discuss that for just a moment. Like Acts 2.38 specifically addresses that subject, I think. There is no doubt in my mind that there is some kind of special bestowal giving, gifting, imparting, indwelling, whatever you want to say, that comes to the person who comes to Jesus through baptism and the Holy Spirit does something with them at that point. Not only does that happen in Acts 2.38 for the 3,000 that are baptized that day, but it specifically happens in the person of Jesus. Like Jesus is our example there also when it comes to his own baptism. The Spirit comes to Jesus at his baptism in a unique and special way. Um, and I... Like I also said Elsie that I that doesn't mean that the spirit hasn't done something prior to that in our lives. I do think that the spirit works through the word to do something in our lives even prior to our baptisms. But there's something that happens to a person at baptism which is unique and different and giving and indwelling in a way that is uh just unlike anything else. Okay, so I I definitely think uh, that that's the case. So d- did I answer your tr- your trouble there? Or? Excellent. I'd like to think that that's the Holy Spirit who's come and who has settled you. Okay? So we've refused to let psychology and emotions dominate our spiritual reflections. And then in this category here, we've been open to our perspectives being changed by God. And I think that's the Spirit too. Like, I do think that our churches are better and more open to what the Spirit is doing among us uh, than in the past. And I think that's evidence that the Spirit's at work doing things among us. So that's exciting to me. Okay, our insufficiencies, and I'm just going to read through these quickly without a whole lot of explanation because I need to move on. Uh, we've been largely reactionary rather than proactively constructive. So we have not done a great job of of doing biblical theology when it comes to the Holy Spirit and having the Spirit, uh, a doctrine of the Spirit really developed among us. It's uh, only in recent years that more has been done in that area. We've been largely reactionary coupled with a polemical, disparaging kind of attitude. So, Not only have we not been proactive in constructing a doctrine, but sometimes we've simply been argumentative, which is a mistake. We've insufficiently let scriptural precepts control our understanding. We've been hesitant and frightened to undertake in depth examination of a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that's because, as Mark was saying, others are doing other things, and it scared us. And so we didn't do the kind of Bible study on the Holy Spirit that we should have been doing all along. Uh, Rational empiricism has controlled us as much as scriptural precepts. Uh, We are children of our own age, and in fact, children of a past age in some sense. Um, Many of us are still more rationalistic than we are postmodern. And that's always probably going to be the the case with many of us. Um, And that's that sometimes our our rational empirical mindset can sometimes hinder, I think, the work of the spirit. We've been given insufficient attention. We've given insufficient attention to the spiritual side of human existence. I think that's just the case. Again, sometimes way too rationalistic and and far too dependent on the fleshly things oftentimes. Um, Not God dependent enough. We have been insufficiently theologically narratively driven rather than being driven by individual propositions. In other words, we haven't looked at the whole story of Scripture to see God taking us someplace through the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we've just looked at give me the book, chapter, and verse for everything, every little point, and that's been our key to everything, rather than allowing the whole story to speak to us. And I, I think that's been a mistake. Uh, we've been insufficiently Trinitarian. If, if we think seriously at all about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which I think we should, then clearly we're going to have to talk about the Holy Spirit. We've been inherently individualistic in assessing the Holy Spirit's role rather than asking the question, how does the Spirit work in the ministry of the church? How does the Spirit move the church? How is the Spirit alive in the church? We tend to just focus on the individual gifting, which I think is a mistake. And we've tended to let questions of practice supersede the contemplative life. And so a lot of times we've just been asking the question, how is the Spirit going to work amongst us to do something rather than asking the question, how does the Spirit help me in my own personal relationship to connect to the Lord. So, those are some ways in which I think we've made some mistakes. Where do we need to be? Well, I think we need to identify the Holy Spirit in a more sufficient way, which means we also need to overtly be, in my opinion, Trinitarian. Uh, again, we don't have time to look at all this this morning. That's why I gave you the outline. Okay? There are scriptural teaching there underneath that point and there's specific references. I would love for you to just look in your Bibles. Look at those scriptures. The the Romans 8, 9, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and all of those others. Look at those passages and just see the way that the New Testament does something with the Trinity. And people will say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. (laughs) True. But the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their unity is everywhere in the Bible. And you're certainly going to find it in those places. Um, The Spirit and our relating to God, a turn to relating to God through an acknowledgement of the Spirit's role and a turn toward biblical spirituality. I think this is huge and very much needed. That's why we spent a year talking about the Holy Spirit. Because there is a need for us to turn and look at the Holy Spirit and the role that He needs to play in our biblical spirituality. And there's tons of stuff there for you to look at in terms of the way the Spirit needs to work among us. Spiritual missionality, focus on the beginning of Acts 1 where the Spirit first makes an appearance, followed of course by Acts 2. And we did some of this last week, or two weeks ago, with prayer. And, and notice the way that it was prayer that was so often at the driving point of the church. But if you'll remember, one of the things I said two weeks ago was every time you see the church praying and being moved to do something in its ministry, the Holy Spirit is right there. Like almost all those passages that we looked at had the Spirit mentioned right along with the prayer that was going on. So I encourage you to look at those and see the way that the Holy Spirit is the driving force behind the church's ministry. And then being a spiritual community, it's the Holy Spirit that creates our unity and makes us uh, one with each other, helps us become unified in Christ. The spiritual growth and maturity that is ours in Jesus is a product of the Holy Spirit. We use the word sanctification to describe what it is that the Spirit does in helping us to be holy and to mature, and the Spirit works uh, in that way. And again, there's lots there to look at. Living spiritually, Spirit is the incarnation of Christ over and over again, Jesus talks about how I'm going to leave. There's one who's going to come after me. He's, when he comes, he is going to be my presence here. If I don't go, he won't come, but you really need him. In fact, you need him more than you need me. Jesus says those kind of things over and over again in John 14, 15, and 16. And those passages are some of those that talk about what the Spirit will do when he comes and is among us. And then I just put down some of the spiritual disciplines there at the end. Okay, all that to say... That the Holy Spirit is one of our core values. Spiritual life for us is crucial, absolutely core to who we are. If you're a person here today and you're thinking, what is this church about? Who are these people? Well, we want to say to everybody that one of the things that we value as much as anything else is the active work of the Holy Spirit among us. That's crucial and core to who we are. The third core value, an overall atmosphere of grace. Now the fact is I don't think there's as much deficiency here in in the way that we have lived in the past as perhaps with the Holy Spirit. And especially in the last 40 years or so, we have greatly changed our attitude or what you could say is our ethos. Like, who are we as a group of people in Jesus? And I would say that our presentation of ourselves, and in fact, our ethos, who we are as a group of people in Jesus, is far more grace-oriented than it used to be. And I'm very grateful for that. And there's two major components to that, I would say. First of all, there's the gospel of grace. This is right from your outline there. Like many evangelical churches, we have historically suffered from legalism, moralism, judgmentalism, and self-righteousness. Sometimes that's been who we are. Now, we've beat ourselves up over and over about that kind of thing, but the fact is evangelicals everywhere have for a long time had the same kind of problem. I would say that in the last 40 years or so, we have greatly come out of that. And in fact, my impression about the Calgary Church of Christ is that the Calgary Church of Christ came out of that early, especially early for Churches of Christ in Canada. My impression is that for a long time, there has been a grace orientation to the Calgary Church of Christ. In fact, a long time before this statement, uh, as being one of our core values, was actually written. And I'm thrilled about that. I'm really pleased that that's who we are. Um, let Let me go ahead and read at least one passage with you here on this. Turn to Romans chapter 3. It is a Bible class. We probably should read the Bible a little bit. Like you might think, yeah, you know, I go to Bible class and read the Bible. But if you look at that top section of the Holy Spirit, I probably gave you 50 scriptures to read. Okay? And I hope you read them. But look at this from Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says but now a righteousness from god apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness from god comes through faith in jesus christ to all who believe there is no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of god and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by jesus christ, by christ jesus god presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood that is about as clear a statement as there is about the grace faith basis of our relationship with God. And we need to stay there. If we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we would find the same thing over and again. It is by grace that you have been saved, and this is through faith. And so, who are we? We are a grace faith oriented kind of people. And I am thrilled that as a Church of Christ in Canada, that that's who we are. Like, for us to say, this is a core value of ours, is absolutely crucial. In fact, there may be nothing that has shaped us as much in the last 40 years and made this church what it is more than this particular concept, the gospel of grace, which now has, I think, as much influence among us as any other principle. I'm just so blessed and pleased to be a part of a church Uh, That's like that. But then not only do we uh, have that as a major feature within our body, there is also grace within our church. And I like this about us as well, because when you are a gospel oriented people, a grace oriented people, a faith oriented people where God has blessed you with his salvation and you don't earn your own salvation and you recognize that you are all Uh, before God, sinners, lost, dead in your transgressions and sins, the way Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, when we recognize that about ourselves, there is no place for us to go about judging other people. When you're dead in your transgressions and sins, you're not in a position to judge anybody. And even after you've been saved by the grace of Jesus and find yourself lifted up in him and now absolutely pristine and free from your sins, you know you're not then also in a position or either to in a position to be judging anybody because the only reason you stand there is because of God's love and grace for you. So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7 with me. This passage, I think, as well as any, expresses the kind of attitude that is to be ours about those around us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Those words are very sobering. Certainly, if you are me, when I consider myself and where I stand in relation to everybody else, I recognize that there is no room for Kelly Carter to be evaluating and judging anybody else. The only thing I can do is stand and look at Jesus and thank him for the salvation that I have received despite myself. And that keeps me from evaluating and judging others. Verse 3 says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now there is some room perhaps for helping your brother to get the speck out of his eye but only after you have no planks in your own. And that's a difficult position to find yourself in. So Jesus clearly says some things there about the attitude that Christians are supposed to have toward others when it comes to judgment and grace. And we need to continue to be people, especially people of grace. Then I want you to turn, since we're already in Matthew, let's just go to Matthew 18. And I think this is fascinating. In verse 21, I think it's fascinating that Peter is the one who asks the question. Like, what is it that this guy had on his mind? Who was Peter not wanting to forgive? Or maybe he was thinking, will they continue to forgive me? But something was on Peter's mind when he asks this question. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And, of course, when Jesus says that, he doesn't mean 77 times or 7 times 70 times. You know, there's no multiple of 7 here that Jesus is trying to refer to. He's talking about complete forgiveness. He's saying, you just keep on forgiving. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who, went to, uh, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. He's selling the whole family. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. He grabbed him, which was, of course, nothing in comparison to his debt. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back but he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. And why is he calling him wicked? Because he won't forgive. He won't forgive. You hold on to bitterness and refuse to forgive someone, and the The judgment of Jesus about that is you wicked servant I cancelled all the debt of yours because you begged me to shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you in anger his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed tortured this is how verse 35 (coughs) this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart And we want to be a church and a group of people who is grace-filled, forgiveness-oriented to the point when we see each other's sin, when we have grudges against each other, when there is bitterness between us, that we fall all over ourselves to go to the other person and say, please forgive me. And we forgive on the spot. Because that's how God treats us and we need to have such a perspective and so we find ourselves I hope absolutely grace oriented with an atmosphere of grace characterizing our church so that it's become actually one of our core values okay any comments about that one before we close our time today standing against hatred and injustice is that considered judgmentalism is standing against hatred and justice, injustice, injustice considered? Like protest. Yeah, is that considered? Considered being judgment. I would say no. I would say that if you're truly standing against hatred and injustice, you're actually doing something right, rather than ca- right. casting. Right. Casting unjust judgment, okay like I would say that it would be that it would be a legitimate discernment, um, and maybe even you could say legitimate judgment or assessment when you find something like real injustice or hatred that we 're evaluating i don 't think that I would call that judgment in the spirit that Jesus was calling something judgment, mark. You don't think that we should just hate the people who hate? I know that sounds like a cliff statement. <laughs> I think sometimes we do I would agree. I would agree. In fact, it's very easy for us to find those with whom we disagree and disagree with them so vociferously that we end up being just as bad as they with the negative attitude that we have in judgment of them. Even when it's done... It can be, yeah, sure. I would agree. I mean I don't know what I would be referring to, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know specifically what you're thinking about, even even with your comment about the news. I don't know. Because our news is so filled with this kind of thing constantly that go ahead, Mark. I didn't see it, so I can't really comment. Um, I do know about all the immigrants, but I don't know anything about the protest that went on, so I can't address that. Kevin, and this will be the last comment.